people found when they went back to look for his dead body? They didn't find it, did it? Did they? They expected to find his dead body, but it wasn't there. They didn't find his body. Now, remember how uh, every pack of gum you've opened before and unwrapped always had gum in it, right? That's what happened before. And some of you were shocked to find out that your wrapper didn't have any gum, right? In a similar way, the people who went to look for Jesus' body in the grave were shocked when they find, found the tomb empty. His body wasn't there. His body was gone. Can you believe that? That had never happened before. His body was gone. It wasn't there anymore. Does anybody know why his body was missing? Because he rose from the dead. Jesus was alive again. Isn't that great? He had died. Jesus had died, but he was raised to life again. Only God could do something like that, right? Could you do that? No way. Only God could do that. And we call this his resurrection. Jesus coming to life again. That's what we celebrate on Easter. But you know what? Easter, it gets even better than that. Because Jesus was dead and is alive again, he can then give us life too. So all of us were one time spiritually dead. In a spiritual sense, we're spiritually dead in our sin. But if we believe in Jesus' death for our sin and in his resurrection, then he gives us spiritual life. And even though these bodies that we have will someday die, We have life with Jesus forever and ever. And God will also resurrect. He will raise these bodies someday as well, just as he raised Jesus from the dead. So the next time you're opening up a a pack of gum and wondering if there's really going to be a stick of gum in there, you can be reminded that Jesus' tomb was empty He wasn't there. His body was gone because Jesus is alive. And that's really good news for us this morning. And it's a great reason for us to celebrate today and every day. Isn't that neat? That's great. Jesus is alive. So thank you all for coming up. You can go back and have a seat. These kids look so beautiful, huh? Girls in their beautiful dresses. Beautiful. We are uh, going to look at Jesus' resurrection in Matthew 28 this morning. If you have a Bible, you could open it with me to Matthew 28. If you don't, there should be a Bible in the, underneath the seat in front of you. And you can turn it to Matthew 28, which is found on page 835 in those Bibles. Matthew chapter 28, or page 835. Um, yeah, you guys in the front row aren't going to have that. Here you go. Or if you could reach around behind and hand them in front, that'd be helpful. All right, there isn't in Christianity any greater truth, happier thought than Christ has been raised. Uh, But you and I should recognize that this will just be kind of sentimental, quick, ethereal, flighty happiness rather than deep down life-changing everything unless you 
begin to see who you are in relationship to who God is. Um, one of the things we'll see throughout this chapter is fear. The guards are terrified and fall down like dead men. The women who come and first see the empty tomb are greatly afraid at a couple occasions. That fear isn't normal to who we were made to be. We were created by God to live in union and harmony and fellowship with Him uh, without fear. But because of sin, because we know that death awaits us and because we know that we'll stand before God in judgment, fear is now an atypical but typical reality. And so Easter has such joy for so many because the fear of death and fear of judgment is gone because Christ has been raised. But you can't know the joy of the resurrection until you first know the fear of standing before God apart from Christ. You can have confidence before God, not because we are so good, but because Christ has been raised. And so, just if you're going to hear one thing, hear this this morning. If you want Easter and the resurrection to be more than a once-a-year thing for you, if you really want to see the glory that so many see so often throughout their lives, then it must begin with you recognizing that apart from Christ, you will suffer eternally away from the presence of God. That you and I, from birth, because of sin, are really that bad. There is nothing good in us that would commend God to accept us into his presence. You know, it's hard to start with on Sunday morning, but I really want you to see this. And you will not see it apart from first recognizing the fear of death because of the fear of judgment before God. And I want you to know that so that you can know the joy of the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection, the glory of the resurrection, how much you don't deserve it but have been given it freely by God's grace. Let me read these. I'm just going to read the first 10 verses of chapter 28. As we go along, I, it's warm in here, isn't it? You should try being up here. Um, if your kids get squirrely, that's fine. We're okay with kids being squirrely, but if, they, if you want to, you can go in the back and walk around and listen. Uh, there's also the nursery, and so feel free to use that. There's bubblers or water fountains or whatever we call it up here. I don't know what we call it up here. What is? Yeah, see that? <laughs> Bubbler, water fountain, whatever. They're around the building, so do that. All right, let's read. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. 
Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up to him and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let's pray, asking God for some help. Your word, O God, is eternal. It is right. It is beautiful. It is full of hope. It is worthy to be obeyed. It is packed with unfailing promises. It is safe and wise and full of the right fear of you. Please strengthen us, hold us up now by your spirit that we might know it, contemplate it. All our human cunning is in vain and so teach us by your great grace to love your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me start by saying what I read actually took place. This is true. This isn't a myth or a fairy tale. This isn't just a good story set down to give us some kind of hope, but that's not true. It is true. We believe that this is actually God's word. That is, God, through the eyewitness testimony inspired by his spirit, actually put down what he wanted written. And so what I read, we receive as if God himself had spoken it, because that's what has happened. And so we're not here dealing with humans' words. We're here dealing with the eternal, unfailing, powerful word of God. And so we believe it. We stake our lives on it. We're not messing around here. This is God's word, and so I want you to receive it as such. So you note in verse 1, it says, after the Sabbath. So the Sabbath, the Jews kept on a Saturday. We now celebrate it on a Sunday because that's the day that Christ has been, was raised from the dead. But Jews kept Saturday as their Sabbath. And so this is a Sunday. Mary and Mary went to the tomb to anoint the Lord's body. He had been crucified and died on a Friday he was placed in his tomb, and they went to that tomb to anoint his body with burial spices. Because, as you know, um, dead bodies stink. And they cared for their Lord enough to do this, at least. Now, it won't seem as strange to us in our day um, because of feminism and so on that it was, it, it should seem strange, but it doesn't, that he was first to appear to women rather than the disciples. This is occurred so that our faith, faith would rest in God alone and to gently correct his disciples who would abandon him. And yet we see throughout Scripture that Christ didn't only appear to these two gals. He appeared to his disciples. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 1.15, he appeared to more than 500. And so this is eyewitness testimony here. And he wants us to base our hope on him an angel of the Lord had come down from heaven. This is marvelous. It's wondrous. He had rolled back the stone. And we note there was a great earthquake because he did these things. It's wondrous. And because of this, big, burly, beefy soldiers fell down like dead men. If you've known a Marine 
This is not a typical response when fear like this comes. These men are trained to assess the situation, to figure out what next steps need to be to keep people safe and to fight an enemy. And these men fail. Their strength fails them before the power of God. But the angel speaks a tender word of comfort to these two women, telling them Jesus is not dead. They brought their burial spices in vain. He is risen. And they should, after seeing the empty tomb for themselves, go and hurry and take this news of disciples to go on to Galilee where Jesus would meet them. And they did so. As they hurry with great fear and joy, it's noted, the risen Lord Jesus appears to them himself. They come in great humility, grab him by the feet. So they humble themselves, prostrate themselves before one who has risen from the dead as is right. And Jesus again reassures them, do not be afraid. He sends them on their way to deliver the message to meet him in Galilee because there the disciples will see him. So we should first note that it is true that everyone who hopes in Christ who died and raised will one day see him. Right? The disciples had hope. They were about to be given hope by these women that if they would listen to God's word and go to Galilee, they would see him. And so every Christian, every person who has no hope in themselves, every, Christ, every person who realizes they have nothing but a rebel before God, has repented their sin and turned to Christ, can have this hope as well. That there will be a day, though not in Galilee, where you will actually see the one who took the nails and who rose from the dead. And this is where you can say amen. There is nothing better in the world than this news that one day Christ will return. Okay? That's it. That's the warp. That's the woof. That's the beginning. That's the end. That's the exclamation point. That's the everything for Christians. There is nothing greater in this universe than that Christ has been raised and will come again. So how are you to live between now and then? What can we learn in this text for how you, a regular, ordinary, Rhinelandarian, somebody who believes in hodags, how are you supposed to live from April 21st, 2019 until the day that your hope is actually sight? Well, look at the feeble faith of these gals. They come disbelieving that Christ would be raised. Okay? Jesus had told them very clearly on several occasions, I am going to Jerusalem. I will be betrayed. I will be condemned. I will be tortured. I will be crucified. But on the third day, I will rise. And if they didn't believe Jesus' word, they could read all of the testimony in the Old Testament foretelling that the Son of God would suffer, he would be bruised, and yet he would rise. And so they disbelieved him. And yet they come to serve him. 
They come not ashamed of his death. They come publicly knowing that there was a Roman guard of soldiers guarding the tomb. They're not ashamed. They're not afraid to identify themselves with the crucified, buried man. And so they come with feeble faith. How about that? Isn't that us? Confused, worried, fearful, yet willing to serve as they can do the best they know how. Isn't that us? We believe Jesus has been risen, and yet on Monday morning, when circumstances at work hit us, we act like it's not true. When we have trouble in our marriage, instead of recognizing Christ has been raised, I don't have to respond out of fear, out of anger. I can love this person. We forget that Christ has been raised and respond in anger. And so this is us. This is you. Their service is welcomed by God. It is pleasing to God. And yet we cannot excuse their or our faithlessness. They were to note that Christ had been raised. That's why the angel adds this little statement at the end of it. As he said, right, verse 6, he is not here for he is risen. Listen to these three words. As he said, that's a dagger through their hearts. They should have listened. He's reminding them of their faithlessness, of their unbelief, of their fear, of their worry, of their anxiety. This is how good God is to you and me. He is so patient in our feeble faith. He welcomes our weak service, and yet he does convict us for our faithlessness and unbelief. He loves us enough to tell us the truth. You should have listened to him. You should have heard what he said and believed him, but you didn't, and yet I welcome your service. And so they come to the tomb seeking a corpse which Jesus told them they would not find. They come with burial spices, which they should have not brought. They should have come expectant of hope to find an empty tomb. And yet God is so patient with them. And so they, like the disciples, are troubled because their Lord had died and been entombed in a grave. And so they cannot fathom how this one who is God and man how Jesus Christ, who is God-made man, could have died. That troubled them to the core. Death is an enemy. It is not a friend. And yet the only way for our Lord to gain victory over the grave was to enter it. This is the very heart of our gospel. If you've heard Christians talk about the gospel, this is the essence of it, the center point of it, that the only way for you and I to have hope in this world, though death is the end of our lives, is if God himself would become just like us and enter into death just like we will. And yet, his disciples, these women who knew him best, were totally undone by his death. When he was put in a grave and it was sealed with a rock, they had no hope left. Nothing. And yet, the only way that he could earn our eternal life and salvation 
was for him to win a battle in a grave. Without his death, you and I could never have eternal life. And so the very thing that left them hopeless is now the very thing that gives us full hope. And so then, it is unthinkable joy when they hear the angels say, he is not here for he is risen. This is such happy news because they thought the death was the end of it when it was just the beginning. Right? We no longer look on death as believers as we once did. We can have hope because Christ has walked into and out of a grave. And he did it by his own power. This is the only hope that human beings can have in this world that is true and sure. Can I ask you, who has ever really proven in your life to be completely trustworthy and faithful? Hasn't everyone that you've ever known failed you in some way? Not been as loyal as you needed them to be at a point. Not been as patient with you as you needed them to be. Not been there for you. Some of you have actually lost parents at a young age. And often when that happens, you'll find that they get angry because they've been left. The parent who should be there isn't. And this is why Christ is hope because he died and rose to never die again. He will never fail. He will never leave. He will never forsake. You will never find him absent, impatient, rude. And this is why the angel and Jesus himself hurry the women on to tell the news. (laughs) Note that? Go quickly. Because it's such good news. We have hope beyond the grave, brothers and sisters, friends. The grave has been dealt a death blow by the one who rose from it. Death is an ancient prison, Charles Spurgeon writes, that no longer has any doors. That's what's happened. So to the fear. You can see that fear is a big deal in these verses. There's a really hard truth in the middle of this fear. The guards trembled, as I said, and became like dead men. We have this euphemism, scared to death. This is why. Well, the women, though fearful, are spoken to very tenderly. First, we should notice it is a regular, normal thing to fear God. But this kind of fear, this abject terror, isn't the way it was once to be. We were supposed to be, as I said, live in right fellowship with God as our creator and father, but now because of sin and fear of judgment, we have this terror. And this is real. This is true. You and I have fallen from grace. We were created by God to obey him, to live in communion with him and refuse This is why so many are so fearful in this world. Because we know, we know, you know, 
that you deserve judgment. It is an undeniable reality. You deserve to face the wrath of God. Now you might say, come on. That's not true. You can deny it. You can try to push it down, but just flip it around if I can. If somebody in your life that you think should respect you disrespects you, what does that do to you? Don't you get angry there? Don't you want justice there? Doesn't that tell you just a little bit what you owe God and fall far short of? We deserve judgment and wrath, and that's why they are so fearful. Our condition before God is deserving of eternal punishment. If you were to be awakened to the presence of God as we should be like this, you would be crushed. All of your virtues would be like smoke that floats away and counts for nothing. And all of your vices would weigh you down like shoes made of lead to a pit. And that's right. That is not wrong. But notice here that the angel makes a distinction. This is the hard truth here. He makes a distinction between his enemies and those he welcomes as his beloved. God has been pleased to put this right in the middle of a text that's filled with joy and hope. God is unthinkably kind to these women, and he leaves the soldiers in their fear. The soldiers are left to terror unto death, and God consoles the two gals. In this, we should find humility before God. We read throughout the Bible that salvation belongs to the Lord. It is not according to our will. It's not according to our goodness. It's not according to our activity that we ever become pleasing to God. God comes to us in unthinkable grace and kindness and welcomes us. We sang it this morning. If you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. Right? You sang it. You sang this truth this morning. Now, you didn't know I was going to make you sing this truth. This is why we should fear God. This is why God had to do for you what you would never do for him. This is why God sent his only beloved son to die on a cross in your place for your same, rise from the dead, and then come to you in grace and in love and speak tenderly to you. Now, here's the thing. The soldiers are no better than the women. The angel didn't speak peace to the women because they were more deserving. Both of these were born in sin from their mother's womb. Both of them had offended God throughout their life with their ingratitude, with their lying, 
They're lusting. God didn't speak tenderly to the women because he preferred them. Because they had done something to earn it. This is grace here. You will not at all be troubled by God leaving the soldiers in their fear when you see that in our sin, that's all that we deserve. And then you will see the greatness of God's grace in speaking so tenderly to the women only if you can see that they do not deserve it either. This is when grace becomes real. This is when grace becomes grace. This is when God speaking kindly to anybody becomes the greatest miracle in the world because nobody deserves it, including you. Including you. You can shake your fist at God all you want and say, who are you? This is grace. This is grace. And when you finally wake up to the depravity of your sin, to the sinfulness of your sin, then you will for the first time be overwhelmed by the goodness of the grace and love of God. But not until that point. Not until that point. Lastly then, look at what Jesus says about his disciples. So the angel speaks tenderly to the women, tells them to go check the empty tomb, which it looks like they don't, at least here, and they quickly depart and run to tell the disciples. They take hold of him and Jesus meets them. And they take hold of him to worship him. But then listen to this. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. There it is again. Go and tell. What does he say? Go and tell my brothers. My brothers. In order to understand the... Um, goodness of those two words, the warmth of them, you have to know what the disciples have just done. All of them fled and abandoned Jesus. They were cowardly. They were disloyal. I mean, have you had somebody treat you like that? In your time of deepest, most sincere need, the people that are closest to you and you could, should count on most, leave you. Have nothing to do with you. They, in our common language, throw you under the bus. It's common in our world, isn't it? Isn't it disloyalty is in such short supply here? Everybody's looking out for number one. Jesus has been abandoned by these men. One of his closest had denied ever even knowing him. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth about these men are, go and tell 
my brothers. <laughs> Go and tell my brothers. This is God made man. This is the God made man who never sinned and is perfectly righteous. This is the God made man who never sinned is perfectly righteous and died on the cross, taking all the sin of these disciples and all the sin of his people for all time. This is the God made man who is righteous, died in place of sinners, and rose from the dead gloriously. And the first words out of his mouth about his backstabbing, cowardly disciples is, My brothers! <laughs> That's how he speaks of us. That's the kind of God we have. You and I are like the disciples. We're weak, we're cowardly, we're ashamed of Jesus and his words. We will not stand up for Jesus. We keep our mouths shut. We hate so many things about him, if we're honest. And what does he say about his people? My brothers. That's what he says. Again, this is grace. You can't earn this. He gives it freely. And what did his resurrection do for you and I? What did it do? Well, we now have one who rules over all the earth. At the very end of this passage, all authority in verse 18 in heaven and earth has been given to me. Christians say he is Lord of the living and of the dead. There is one ruler over this universe and his name is Jesus. That's for us. He is the head of his church. He rules specially over his people. He has a special care and consideration and protection and provision for his people that he doesn't have for anybody else in this world. That's for us. He in his death took all of your sin and in his resurrection in Romans 4.25 it says he was raised for our justification that means because Christ rose as Lord over everything, you can be counted as acceptable before God. You can be counted as never sinned, but always obeying. Not because you do, but because Christ did, and that's now counted for you because he was raised. That's what he did. That's what this guy did. He makes you alive by his grace, this resurrected. He is the Lord of life. You can have life forever. Eternal life because of this one. He supports you against all enemies. There is nothing in heaven and earth that can separate you from his love. That's what he did in his resurrection. He secured you. And because he is raised and ascended and reigning, you and I can have 100% complete, rock-solid, granite-founded assurance that we will be raised on the last day as well. That's what he did. So when he says, my brothers, he's not just playing. He's just not using words. He is saying all that I just said in these two words. These men are mine. 
I have forgiven all of their sins. I have given them my righteousness. I have protected them and will protect them from all of their enemies. And on the last day, I will raise them again. Why? Because they're my brothers. Because I am their older sibling who walked through death into resurrection, ascended, and they will too because they're mine. That's what Christ is saying. In those two words, he is not ashamed to call us brother. He's not ashamed of his people. We should never be of him. We should be willing to suffer anything for his sake. We should be willing to lose friend and family for following him. We should treat his church family like he treats his family. Oh man, how pitiful it is when people treat the church family so. You know what I'm, I'm going to be careful with a word there. I'm learning. Look at how he treats us. Doesn't this tell you everything you need to know about how to live in this world? In those two words, it's right there. That's the wisdom of our God. We are so impressed by titles and accolades. We want so to receive official titles. And these two words should mean more to you than anything else that anyone would ever say about you. We envy what others get and we forget what Christ has given in those two words. Which means, of course, when he says, my brothers, he refers to our Father that we have in common. Jesus said before his death that after he arose, he would return to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. That's what's in those two words. You have a Father in heaven. Did you hear that? Because the Savior is the Son of God and because the Son of the Father in heaven came down, lived righteously, died in, the pla- in our place on the cross, was raised from the dead, ascended to the Father, all who have faith in him have his Father as their Father. What else do you need? What else do you need? Now, if you are here, on Easter, invited by family, maybe dragged along, pestered, and you find yourself here. I'm sure they invited you because they loved you, and they invited you because they wanted you to hear this gospel. They wanted you to have what they have. They are an imperfect messenger. You are probably dissatisfied sometimes with their life and their words, but they're forgiven. They have this as their hope and this father as their father and they want that for you. There is no magic thing to do here. There's no magic words to say. You don't have to walk down here and sign anything. You just have to simply know a couple things. One, there is a God. He created you. Two, we are dead to him because of our sin. And three, 
The only way to become alive to him and accepted to him is by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's it. It's just simply looking at Jesus and saying, I need you. You confess him as your Lord. You, you, you say to this world, I want nothing but him. And as long as I have him, you've got nothing for me. That's it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son in whom we have life. Thank you that he tells us to not be afraid, calls us brothers, which means we have you as our father. And so we thank you for this. This is all of you. You've done this. You've accomplished it. You've secured it. Comfort your beloved with these words. Convict the proud and win the lost who are far from you now. Please, God, do it for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Charge is this. Go from here knowing that Christ is the founder of, this, of our salvation. He is the source of it and of our sanctification. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. Go therefore in the name of the one who has all authority in heaven and earth and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe everything that he has commanded us because he is with us to the very end of the age. That's the charge. Now may the God of peace who brought you again or who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of his beloved sheep by the blood of his eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ our Lord who has been raised from the dead and ascended and reigns over everything to him be glory forever and ever